This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 29. If you walked up to a stranger and told them that you are a pilot, they'd probably imagine you flying a large airline across the world to exotic locations. If you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you realize that there are many pilot jobs other than at the major airlines. But what is it like to be a captain at a major airline? Well, today I have with me someone who can answer that question. But first, a word from our sponsor. One of the best ways to keep motivated and informed is through reading, watching videos, and listening to audiobooks. Amazon.com is a great way to shop for information and products relating to the field of aviation. Amazon also is a huge online store where you can find most of your shopping needs. If you want to help support Aviation Careers Podcast, shop at one of the largest online retailers by linking to Amazon from our website. Simply click on the Shop at Amazon button or type in your web browser, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash Amazon. By linking to Amazon from this website, you help make available all the valuable career content in this podcast. Most importantly, it doesn't cost you any more to simply link from this website and purchase your products. Thanks for your support. Today I have with me Jeff Nielsen, a captain with a major airline. Jeff has over 23 years of flying experience and is a senior captain on the MD-88-MD-90. He also is no stranger to sharing his story of being a pilot as he is the host of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. Jeff has agreed to join me today to help us understand the job of being a captain with a major airline. Welcome to Aviation Careers Podcast, Jeff. Well, thanks, Carl. Uh, great. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, first of all, I, I, I have to take umbrage with senior captain. Are you saying I'm old? <laughs> you know, I, I did senior as in longevity. Oh, oh okay. As in longevity. Okay. That won't take offense then. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do sound fairly young, though, to be a senior captain. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I'm not, but, uh, you know, I feel young sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, Jeff, it's been terrific listening to your podcast, and we'll get to that in the, towards the end. And mm -hmm. uh, But one of the things that I like about it is you really share your story of being an airline pilot. And today I, I want to talk to you about being a, a captain with a, with a legacy airline. And, you know, when we talk about legacy airline, just so the listeners understand, these are the airlines that set up their routes prior to deregulation in the 70s. So that's kind of what we're we're talking about here, you know, the, the big, big airlines that you hear in the news all the time, the, the United's, the Deltas, and, and those type of things, whereas a post-deregulation airline be something like a Southwest or, or like a JetBlue, that type of thing. Um, but first, before we, we do get into that, Jeff, you know, it seems just from listening to you, you can tell that you really do have a passion for aviation. And just wondering, how, how did you develop that passion? Well, probably like most of your listeners, um, growing up, um, you know, as a boy, I, I always played with, I didn't play with dolls, I played with uh, paper airplanes and little airplane models, and I was out there in my backyard, you know, holding the thing and pretending I was piloting this thing, and, you know, watching shows that had uh, to do with uh, flying airplanes were always thrilling to me. And then when we, as a family, go to Los Angeles International Airport to take family members or pick up family members from the airport, I just um, 
was um, enthralled with the whole aviation atmosphere, watching those pilots walking up and down the concourses and their really great-looking uniforms and then smelling that. A lot of people laugh at me, but that smell of jet fuel that's burnt, you know, that uh, exhaust, the jet fuel exhaust just has this, it's mesmerizing to me. I love that smell. Everything about flying and when I went to the airport was just fascinating to me. And I knew I must have been maybe eight, nine years old, or maybe even younger when I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I knew nothing about the airline industry. I knew nothing about pay. Of course, when you're somebody that age, who cares, really? You know, you just want to go out there and do something awesome like flying airplanes. And so that's how I got interested in it. And I started even subscribing to Flying Magazine when I was like 10 or 11. And I, I still remember reading these articles in Flying Magazine and looking at all this stuff. And they were talking about NDBs and, and uh, VORs and all these different things. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was still fascinated by that. And I just, the more I read, the more I started absorbing. And uh, I just uh, fell in love with it. You know, as I was listening to you, I think I think most of us can relate to that story. And we, uh, we've all developed that kind of passion as a child and that, that wonder of flight. And, you know, I thought you were going to quote from the movie, you know, there's nothing like uh, the smell of jet fuel in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you know, not the, uh, it, it's interesting because you, you start talking about different things like NDBs and VORs. And these, uh, to some of our listeners, are very strange concepts. And, and mm-hmm. those are, are different types of devices for uh, navigation. But one of the things that many people won't, won't hear about anymore are NDBs, just like you talked about. If uh, for those pilot friends of us out there, uh, that those are going away, as they say, and they're they're pretty much being decommissioned. Right. I was going to say, you know, those things I just mentioned uh, for new generation pilots, they're going to go, "What? What are you talking about? <laughs> it's all uh, it's all that fancy uh, magic stuff now, you know." So, Jeff, you, you became really interested in flying, you know, like uh, being a kid at the airport watching. But mm-hmm. now you're a captain with an airline. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you just decide, okay, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to – did you have a path or did you just start uh, really doing research or just, just find somebody and start doing it? Well, no, I didn't fall into it like a, a lot of people do and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I still remember um, showing up at the uh, – officer training school in San Antonio, and I was in a program they called the Fish Pot Program, the F, uh, Flight Screening uh, Pilot Officer Candidate uh, Program or Officer Trainee Program, so FSPOT. And that was a program that they had for people who did not have their private pilot licenses. So when I went off after I graduated from college and I went to uh, into the Air Force and went through the officer training program, because I did not have my private pilot's license at the time. I did have a little bit of, um, of hours in my logbook, but I, I didn't have my complete license. Uh, we go through this little miniature pilot training program. They try to simulate what it would be like to go through the year-long undergraduate pilot training program in the Air Force. And I was astonished at how many people, you know, we were in this big room and they said, how many people uh, have their pilot licenses? And, you know, I think maybe one or two. And uh, but as I said, most of us didn't. And then uh, then he said, how many people have actually, you know, some time in a small airplane and then another handful of people. And then he said, how many people have never actually flown in an airplane? And there were several people in that room that had never even flown in an airplane. And I was like, what? You've never been in an airplane? So, uh, uh, wow. anyway, so that's the, that really, that idea of flying attracts so many people. I kind of, I think that's what that demonstrates. Not, not necessarily the actual flying itself, but the fascination right. with flight. 
exactly. So um, I, I think I just de- derailed your question a little bit. Uh, what, what was well, the well? Just uh, as far as becoming now, here you are in the military. Then you mm-hmm. you went there. Now, how did you get to be a captain at an airline? How did you get okay. to that point? Well, okay. Uh, maybe I should back up a little bit. When I was in high school, I had a passion for flying, and uh, I also had a passion for music. And I was kind of going back and forth. Okay, do I, I, I kind of go with my music path and then do flying as a hobby, or do I do flying as my career path and then music as a hobby? And I realized really quickly, you know, the older you get, the more reality starts sinking in, and you start looking at, you know, how much money a band director makes mm-hmm. and how much money an airline pilot makes. And realized right away that if I went into my career field of music, that I would not be able to afford to fly, most likely. Uh, so I decided I need to do the flying for a living, and then the uh, music can be a, a side passion. So I uh, started looking at how, how to get there, as many people are doing right now listening to your podcast and a lot of people listening to mine as well. They'll say, how do, I want to get to where you are. How do I get there? And um, it, at, at the time, uh, this was back in the uh, mid-70s, uh, the people that were getting hired by the major airlines, because that's where I wanted to end up, uh, were the folks that were, uh, most of the guys were military trained. And, you know, honestly, I did not want to go into the military. I, I wanted to go the civilian route. Uh, but very few people at that time were making it into the airlines, uh, the, the majors anyway, uh, with a civilian background. And so I decided, well, Maybe flying is not my thing. And so I went off to college and I was studying engineering. And uh, after a couple very, very difficult years uh, studying uh, engineering, I realized, you know, I can't, I can't imagine myself doing this for a living. But I can imagine myself flying airplanes for a living. And so finally I, I, I made a big decision. I said I'm going to switch over to uh, the aviation management um, degree program at uh, Auburn University. And I am going to go full bore uh, to try to uh, you know do whatever I can to become uh, marketable for the airlines, and I realized at that point that meant having to go into the military. So I looked at the ROTC option at Auburn, a very strong program, but a lot of my friends were in that program, and they were getting the runaround. They were getting their pilot slots pulled from them, and then you know, give them given them back. And I thought I'm not going to do this for another couple of years, and then find that I don't have a pilot slot. So I decided to continue the aviation management program. Uh, and then I would, at the end of my college uh, time, I would uh, look into the officer training school program. And so that's what I did. I uh, went into uh, the Air Force uh, two weeks after I graduated from Auburn. And, uh, and the rest is history. I went, uh, went into the program, flew C-141s, uh, Starlifters, uh, Lockheed. And uh, I was also an instructor pilot in the uh, T-37. And uh, that... Uh, that experience was what the major airlines, at least at the time in the late 70s, early 80s, were looking for, uh, among other things. And uh, I got hired by a legacy airline. And I felt that, wow, I finally made it to where I wanted to be. Now, how, how do you become a captain? Well, basically, uh, as you know, it's just uh, staying with that same airline uh, for as long as you can and as people at the top of the list either retire or go out on sick leave or, or die, uh, you move up, uh, your seniority moves up, and uh, when that slot becomes available, as long as you keep yourself healthy, uh, it's yours to have if you want it. So how long have you been a captain? Uh, 
Well, I, uh, I've been with Acme Airlines. That's the uh, virtual airline that I say I fly for. Uh, for uh, just over 24 years. I just uh, went past my 24th anniversary. Wow. And I checked out as a captain about the 12-year point. So I've, I guess about half of my career now, uh, I've been a captain for this uh, large legacy airline. And I could have checked out earlier um, on, a, on a smaller airplane, uh, maybe a year or two earlier. But I wasn't quite ready to do that. And I wanted to check out as a captain on something that I had flown before. And I'd flown both the flight engineer position and the co-pilot position on the 727. So when that uh, opportunity came up and I, was a, I had enough seniority to, to fly captain on it, I, uh, I bid for that and uh, was awarded it and uh, got to fly it for just under two years before they retired it. You know, it's interesting. You brought up a good point, uh, holding captain and actually upgrading to captain. Uh, just so the listeners understand, your seniority is what enables you to upgrade to captain, but many people don't upgrade. I mean, you, I assume, know some people who are staying in the right seat as a first officer because for many reasons, one of them being their schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could speak towards that, you know, as, as far as, you know, why would somebody not upgrade to captain? Well, you know, this this is um, this world of uh, aviation or airline flying is interesting because uh, everybody has a, a different idea of what the ideal uh, position is in your job. Now, I know I have friends who love the international stuff, the wide body international flying, these really nice long layovers in exotic places, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show. And they don't mind being uh, a first officer, a senior first officer. And what that means is that because of their seniority, they can kind of pick and choose the trips they want to fly. And they can uh, pick the, uh, the days of the week they want to fly. They can have holidays off. They can have weekends off. And so they have a lot of control over their schedule. Now, they uh, make very close to about the same amount of money a, a captain would make on a narrow body flying domestically. But again, they they have that uh, scheduling flexibility and they have the uh, those great layovers, those international layovers. On the other hand, there are people like me who, um, I, you know, I don't mind flying internationally and, and having those great layovers, but that's not what drives me. What, what I want to do is I want to fly my trips during the week. I want to kind of uh, be home on the weekends and the holidays and birthdays and that kind of thing. And so I stay uh, in the uh, domestic system. And also another thing, it's, which I think is important, the older we get, the more our bodies are subjected to the, uh, the abuse of time zone changes, you know, that circadian rhythm. And that's something you don't have to really deal with if you're flying domestically as I am. And I, I stay mostly in the same time zone. Maybe I go over one time zone away, like in the central time zone. But I fly a trip and I'm always on the same time zone and I don't have to really worry about circadian rhythm issues. But it's just whatever you want. I mean, if you want to be a senior first officer uh, flying those great international trips, then uh, you know more power to you. Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that. So, well, what if you wanted to do that? You could actually change somehow to do that by. Mm-hmm. And how would that process go about? How would you be able to change over? Well, every so often, uh, the airlines, um, you know, they they project requiring the fleet changes and people uh, leave the job for, for whatever reason, and uh, surpluses. I mean, uh, uh, vacancies become available for that particular category or that uh, that airplane at that base. And they also have um, uh, surpluses. In other words, sometimes they get too many 
uh, pilots in a particular seat position on an airplane at a certain base. And so uh, every, I don't know, couple months or so, it depends on the, you know, everything is cyclical in, in aviation. Sometimes you don't have, we call these advanced entitlements at ACME. Um, and different airlines call them different things. But basically it's that, that opportunity to put in a request to do something different, whether it's a, a different airplane, a different position, a different crew base, whatever. And uh, so if if you want to change or you want to upgrade or or downgrade, I don't you know, depending on your term terminology, uh, you you put in your request and based on your seniority, if you can hold that uh, particular job in that uh, that category, that seat position, that airplane, whatever, you're awarded it. And you can even tweak it a little bit more. Say you want to fly um, uh, as a captain on a particular airplane somewhere, but you don't want to be on reserve, which means that you're on call and you want to hold a line, which is basically holding a regular schedule. Uh, you can specify, well, I want to fly, you know, captain on the uh, DC-9 in, uh, in Memphis, uh, but I want to be at least the 50 percentile in, in the group of the people that are flying that. So you can actually tweak it uh, quite a bit by uh, putting in different parameters. So, And uh, as I said, they, they open this period of time for people to put in their requests, or we call it bids. And after this amount of time ends, they run it through a big computer and it spits out the results. And then you go on your computer or whatever and you look to see if you... Uh, we're awarded that position. That's how that whole thing works. I know that's kind of a kind of a nutshell view of what an advanced entitlement is uh, at a major airline, but uh, that's generally how it works. That's interesting. Now, um, you had mentioned something else uh, that uh, I'm kind of trying to get my head around. It's uh, and some of our listeners about pay. You had said mm-hmm. before that uh, like a junior first officer can actually make just as much as a captain on a smaller airplane. How does that pay work? Okay, at uh, at most legacy airlines in the United States, um, and I can really only speak to m- my own airline because that's what I know for sure. Everything is based upon the pay is based upon the holding captain or you know being the the top uh, position on a particular airplane. Um, and so, for instance, the smaller narrow bodies have a certain amount of uh, hourly pay for the captain. And then the first officer usually gets something about two-thirds of that pay rate. So let's just throw a number out there. This is not an accurate number. I'm just kind of pulling it out of my whatever. Um, let's say that the smallest narrow body airplane at this legacy carrier, the captain gets paid $100 per hour. Then typically the first officer would be making about $67 per hour on that same equipment. Now, this, of course, is also based on how many years you've been with the company. So we have a pay scale that starts off from year one and goes, it tops out at our particular company at year 12. So if you're, uh, you know, year three and and uh, on this particular airplane as a first officer, then you make this particular pay rate. So as you go on, as the airplanes get bigger and bigger and bigger, so we'll go all the way to the opposite end of the scale, the wide bodies, the 747, the 777s, the uh, Airbus 330s, 340s, all those big international wide body airplanes, they're going to be at the top of the pay scale. And the captain on that may, may make you know, $250 per hour. And then the first officer will make approximately two-thirds of that. So whatever that is, I'm doing the math in my head, but, you know, probably around 180 per hour, something like that. And so you can see that if if you're a narrow-body captain on one of the smaller uh, jets, 
your pay rate may be about the same as a senior first officer on one of the wide-body international things. So that's how the pay thing works out, at least uh, in this legacy airline that I fly for. I think that's true with uh, most of the airlines out there from all the different pay scales that I've I've studied myself. And, you know, it's interesting that you really don't realize another thing about the pay. When you said per hour, uh, airline pilots are paid by the flight hour. In other words, from the time the door closes until the time the door opens at the destination. So that hourly rate sounds like a lot. If you were to say $100 an hour, and to a regular person, that could be, including in vacation, that might be, say, 200000 a year. But $100 an hour normally works out to a pay of around 100000 a year because mm-hmm. based on the fact that we can't fly more than 100 hours per month or 1,000 hours per year. Mm-hmm. And so that's just something I wanted to point out there. You know, so a lot of people, when you see the, the captain preparing the aircraft and all, they're not getting paid at that point. They're, they're actually the, the time the pay starts is when that door closes and they usually release the brake. Exactly. So it's basically about twice as much as what a typical, uh, job would be, um, if you're working a 40 hour work week. In other words, if I go out on a four day trip, I just flew a four day trip last week and that trip was worth like, 21 hours and some odd minutes. If I'd worked a, a typical job, 40 hours a week, that would be what, um, you know, close to 40 hours, uh, 30-something hours of pay, and I only got 21. So I guess it doesn't work out to be twice, but you kind of get the idea uh, that um, our pay rates sometimes sound like they're just outrageously high, but we're only getting paid, as you say, Carl, when the door closes and the door opens back up when we arrive. Although we're doing a lot of things uh, at other times uh, while we're on our job, we're not getting paid for it. But with that said, the pay rates are pretty good. I mean, as oh, yeah. far as being an airline pilot, you know, again, I like to quote the Bureau of Labor Statistics. For a legacy airline, uh, the median income is 130000 a year. Mm-hmm. And there's oh, yeah. quite a few that make a lot more than that and a few that make less than that. But that's uh, it's still a very good living uh, compared to most. Well, absolutely. I, I, uh, if, you're, if you're interested in an aviation career and you're, you're thinking about trying to get on with the majors, the legacy airlines, absolutely. I, I think it's uh, great pay, uh, great benefits, and uh, especially if you're somebody like me and Carl who have a passion for flying. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people like me who would, who would probably do this job. I don't want anybody to hear me <laughs> say this, but, you know, I'd probably do it for a lot less money because I love doing this job. But um, we have a lot of um, responsibility and a lot of risks that we take and, and it, uh, a lot of things that affect our lifestyle that we uh, sacrifice by doing this job. And I think that it's just um, appropriate that we get compensated, uh, you know, appropriately. Yeah, I agree. Just don't let management know that we do this for a lot less money. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think they kind of know it. I think they figured that out. Because it is, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, getting away from the pay, because pay is important. You, mm-hmm. know, you have to make a living. But yeah. there's so much more in a career, no matter what you do. You have to do something you really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, I mean, I'm surrounded by aviation at work and after work, and so are you, because you have your podcast, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you know, Jeff, I assume you like being an airline captain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if so, why? I mean, what is it you really like about the job? Well, you know what they say, Carl. You uh, once you become a captain, you you always fly with your favorite captain. <laughs> so, and and you're chuckling because you know that uh, when you're a first officer, you kind of have to be a chame- chameleon, mm-hmm. and uh, you have to kind of adapt to each captain personality you're flying with. And uh, this is probably you know more 
uh, amplified in the early days of flying when uh, captain was king and this whole idea of crew resource management and working together as a crew and all that kind of stuff was uh, uh, not really present at the time. Uh, you know, I, I hear stories all the time uh, of these um, captains in the old days that basically said, look, uh, you don't touch a switch unless I tell you to touch that switch. And uh, you, you had a lot of the, uh, those kind of guys back in those days. But in today's world, um, we are a team, uh, the captain and first officer and sometimes uh, uh, two first officers if you're flying international on some of those trips. And uh, we work together. We make decisions together. But the the buck stops with the captain. You are the final uh, arbiter of whatever decision, decision is going to be made. And uh, I think for the most part, most captains are like that. They, uh, uh, they encourage a, a team environment. You know, you have to be a, a leader, uh, but uh, the decision, the buck stops with the captain. And that's what I love about being a captain because I can set the, the atmosphere uh, the tone of the trip. And I like going out there and flying and having as much fun as I can doing it. And I think the only reason we should not be having fun is when the weather kind of gets a little cruddy or there is some kind of a mechanical problem that you have to deal with or perhaps even a, a passenger-related problem in the back that uh, causes a little bit of stress. Otherwise, if everything is going smoothly, you have great weather, uh, the the two of you or three of you up front should be having a great time, right? Oh, yeah. And that's that's the kind of uh, atmosphere that I like to project when I'm flying as uh, as captain. And um, Carl, I don't know if you've flown with guys that you know you're you're flying along and you see a line of thunderstorms, and your your captain's flying the airplane and they're going right at one of these cells and you're going, well, you, should I ask for a, a deviation? And they go, no, no, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. And as a first officer, you just kind of sit there and go, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And uh, you just kind of tighten up your seatbelt and uh, hope for the best and uh, and, and con continue to suggest alternative uh, plans of action. But, you know, if you're the captain and you want to fly really, really close to one of these air, uh, thunderstorm cells, well, uh, they're most likely going to do it. And uh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I, I give a wide berth to... Uh, nasty weather and uh I, I feel good about that and uh i like not having to fly with these uh guys that uh, do kind of oddball things you know and that that's actually brings up the next point as far as the benefit of actually being a captain you know i've uh you know for our, some of our listeners know i'm actually going back to being a first officer after being captain for gosh about six seven years and uh it like you said one of the benefits is you get to choose uh, what weather you want or don't want to go through I think the airlines have changed, though, in their attitudes towards uh, that, you know, as far as crew resource management, where we're co-captains more than mm -hmm. just a captain. So you hope that the captain, and I do this, if I'm doing something that looks a little uncomfortable, I'll explain that this is what I'm going to do, and this is my out to the mm -hmm. first officer. And you hope you get a captain like that, that kind of brings you into the fold as to what's going through their mind. Uh, but that's one of the big benefits. And, you know, what what are some of the other benefits of being a captain? I mean, what, what's what's the really cool things about being captain with an airline? Well, you would think that uh, all of the flight attendants would just be fawning over you and uh, everybody will be kind of moving out of your way and parting, you know, the crowds part as you walk through the – well, no, none of that is true. Um, 
let's see what are some other cool things about being a captain one thing that i i thought of is and you know i can always go first is the fact that mm -hmm. there's some you do get a lot of challenges and more so than than being a first officer because like you said the buck stops with you in that you have all these things that you have to think about at the same time you know and i i'll give you a good example real quick I uh, did my last flight as captain a couple weeks ago, uh, or last flight for a while. And as I'm pulling to the gate, I had a little flashback to the first decision I made as captain. And it had nothing to do with flying. It was a, a gentleman in the back who was shipping off to Iraq, had three bags, and he got a phone call that his daughter had, was just killed in a car wreck. And I was with my Czech airman, and the Czech airman looks at me and he says, what are you going to do? And I just was befuddled. I said, Oh my God, this is not a flying decision. This is, this is a decision, a personnel decision. But he said, you're a captain now. You have to make these decisions. These are the challenges you have to deal with. He says, you know what? You better let that guy off the plane and you're going to delay the flight and wait for his bags. And I said, yes, sir. I said, that's the best decision <laughs> that you just made. And that, mm -hmm. that's one of the challenges you had. You, you know, that, that plus, you know, someone calls you and says, Hey, we have a pig in the back running up and down the aisle. Well, how did that pig get on the airplane? You know, those, those are the, the, unique situations where you get to make some pretty interesting uh, out-of-the-box type of decisions. You know, that's that's one of my favorite parts of being a captain. Yeah, and, you know, the cool thing about being a captain, and, and you were, in uh, your story, kind of reminded me of it, and it's one of my big pet peeves, is that with the authority of being a captain, you have captain's authority. That's why they call it that. And um, it's very clearly stated in the Federal Aviation Regulations that uh, we have this overriding authority to make decisions that are the best for the safety of our passengers. And uh, I'm afraid, and I see as time goes on, that that uh, authority, uh, the captain's authority, is being eroded. And not in uh, large part or in large part due to the fact that captains out there are not exercising it. They're afraid to. They're getting pressured by their companies, et cetera, uh, for making decisions that maybe aren't always the best. And so I think that one of the great things about being the captain is you hold that big stick. Carl, as you mentioned, you can make that decision and nobody – well, people may question it after the fact. But if you made that decision, um, you know, analyzing the situation and you made that decision that you thought was the best, especially for the, the safety and comfort of your passengers, it's going to be easy to defend if you have to talk to anybody after the fact. And, you know, that brings up another point. When you're the captain, the, the, you say the buck stops here, but you may be questioned afterwards about your actions, mm -hmm. and especially by the chief pilot. So the chief pilot might call you, and that's another part of your duties that we haven't talked about, mm -hmm. is that, you know, they might call you and say, hey, listen, could you explain what happened with this flight, and why did you go 45 minutes late waiting on a jump seater, that type of thing? Right. And you have to, and you have to explain that, and you better have a good ex explanation for it. Mm -hmm. so you have to think a little bit more about your job when you go home. Not Not a lot, but a little bit more. Especially when there's an instance like that, right? And, uh, you know, where you have something that goes wrong, uh, mm -hmm. and you know you do have the paperwork to fill out. And when there's an issue, they will bring you into the NTSB hearing or whatever it may be uh, to talk to them. And and you're the captain, you're the person, that right? Yeah. So every time you're out there, you're basically hanging it out there. Uh, it's your certificate is um, is always uh, kind of. At risk, so you have to be very careful about the decisions you make because, as you just mentioned, the uh, NTSB, the FAA, uh, may think that something you did was not really the right thing, and they may say, you know what, we want to hold this guy's certificate for a couple weeks or a month or whatever, you know, and then 
you have to uh, deal with that kind of thing. So sure. you have to be uh, careful about all the decisions you make. But as long as you're out there trying to do the best job you can, keeping in mind all the regulations that we have to uh, worry about and uh, keeping in mind the safety and comfort of your passengers, it's really hard to go wrong. Right. So is there anything else you can think of as being a benefit of the captain before we move on? No, no, that's about it. And then, uh, you know, I, I think you can you can sit there and, and and analyze this to death. And the the other cool thing is that on certain approaches, you get to look out the left window instead of the right window, especially when mm-hmm. you're going into to DC and landing south. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's I, my main benefit. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And and the expressway visual, runway three one yeah. at LaGuardia. Mm-hmm. You're right. Cool. That yeah. is a, definitely a, a good thing about being the captain because you can actually see the runway. <laughs> those, are, those are kind of fun things. Uh, but you know, getting to your airplane, the, the plane mm-hmm. that you fly, uh, it's a pretty cool plane. I used to I used to jump seat on it, and I think it, from what I remember, it's pretty darn fast compared to others. Uh, <laughs> And just maybe you could explain a few things. That, what are some of the cool facts about what you fly and what is it that you fly? Well, I fly the um, the MD-80, MD-90 series. Uh, at Acme, we fly the 88 series of this uh, jet. And basically, uh, I, I like to call it the DC-9ER, extended range. Uh, the it's, it's based on the DC-9 uh, family of airplanes. And in fact, I think that when they certified it, it was the DC-9-80 or the DC-9-90 and then uh, when they when they started producing these things sometime in the uh, 80s, I think they decided to change the designation. Although, interestingly, uh, folks like me who uh, fly the MD-88 and the MD-90 and folks over at um, uh, uh, AirTran uh, flying the Boeing 717, if you look at their airline transport pilot license and you look at their type ratings on their, on their little uh, license, guess what it says? DC-9? Yep, oh, DC-9. Wow. Because that's the uh, how the airplanes were certified, and I guess it costs a lot of money for uh, for companies that make airplanes to recertify uh, into uh, different categories. So to save money, they decided to keep the uh, certification the same. So uh, I thought that was a little interesting fact. But uh, so people look at my license and they say, "Oh, DC nine type rating," and then I said, "Yeah, but I've actually never flown." A real DC nine. <laughs> so, um, and, and you mentioned something about being fast. Actually, no, it's it's really not that fast. Our our typical cruise Mach is about point seven four. Uh, we can get up to maybe seven six, seven seven, seven eight. Uh, once we get a little bit faster than that, then you start getting that little uh, high speed burble, a uh, little bit of a vibration. So you your airplane is telling you, I don't want to go any faster than that. Um, so. It's not the uh, the super speed rocket out there like the Lockheed L-1011 was, and we typically cruise with that one about 0.86, 0.87 Mach, which, of course, if you're not familiar with Mach, that's the percentage of the speed of sound. Um, and uh, the 727 was another airplane I flew. It was on the fast side. We'd typically be cruising at 0. 0.82, 0. 0.83, 0. 0.84, something like that. This one, a little bit slower, but that's okay. Um, most airplanes out there now in the... Uh, in the jet altitudes are all flying right around 0.7677, something like that. So we all kind of coexist pretty well together. And uh, let's see. The uh, interesting thing about this airplane, uh, you know, I mentioned I've flown Lockheed's, I've flown Boeing's, and this is the first McDonnell Douglas airplane that I'd flown, is the fact that because of its um, uh, genealogy. It's it's a DC-9, and the DC-9 was a very manual flying airplane. A lot of cables 
going all over the place. Uh, in fact, if you look underneath some of the panels and you see all these pulleys and cables and everything else, you're just amazed that this thing could actually fly. And uh, the flight controls on this airplane are really interesting because, you know, when I, when I move the control column, if I want to bank the airplane to the left and I turn the control wheel to the left, you know, the cable's going all the way back through the fuselage, all the way out to both wings, and that little cable is connected to a little tab on the trailing edge of the ailerons. And that, those little tabs deflect. It's kind of like a trim tab, but these are called control tabs. And those tabs actually move the ailerons. And so they actually affect the, uh, the role of the airplane that way. There is no hydraulic power going to the ailerons or to the elevator on the, at least the 80 series of airplanes. So that's one of the unusual things wow. about this airplane. And it has a different feel. So you're actually, uh, you know, that kind of flying in the 727 or the L-1011 would be called manual reversion. And it's something you would not want to do unless you had an emergency. Um, in this airplane, that's the normal operating, um, you know, system uh, for flight controls. Now, the MD-90 does have a powered uh, elevator uh, in the back. So uh, you, you do have a hydraulically powered elevator and both airplanes uh, the rudder is hydraulically powered but uh, that's one of the interesting things and it, it kind of has a, a different feel uh, but you are actually when you're holding on to that control column you're actually feeling the aerodynamic forces on the ailerons and the elevator and everything else it's not something that's giving you some kind of an artificial feel it's actually the real aerodynamic forces on the airplane and once your brain gets synced into the way it works it's really a kind of a cool way of flying. I really like it now. I've been on this airplane for about ten years or so, maybe a little bit more. So you actually get to fly. You get to. Yeah. You're touching the air. You know, as they say, mm -hmm. it's a. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people don't realize there's a lot of airplanes out there. The one I just finished flying, uh, the elevators were uh, mechanically. Uh, attached and there's no power control or, or like you said with the rudder and that's uh, it's kind of a different feel like you said it's a it, it's a little more of a, a touch than a feel and it does get different when you get at higher uh, speeds and and lower speeds it is uh, you definitely do feel that but the artificial mm -hmm. feel units nowadays that they have on the fly by wires you, you can actually feel that on there too mm -hmm. and of course now these airplanes are going to joysticks so that's mm -hmm. that's something different. Uh, one of the interesting things, uh, just a quick, um, you know, you, you were mentioning fun facts about the uh, MD-88, MD-90. Uh, not so much with the 90, but the uh, 80 series. If you're ever out there flying and you're taxiing out and you're behind an MD-80, 82, 83, 88, whatever 80 series it is, you may notice that the elevators, let's say the winds are blowing such that the, the left elevator is like in the up position and the right elevator is in the down position, and you look at that and you go, oh my, something is terribly wrong with that airplane up there and their control surfaces. And in fact, I remember one of the first times I saw that, I was a uh, 727 flight engineer, and I was looking out the window, and I'm looking at that airplane ahead of me, and I'm going, wow, what is wrong with that airplane? And the two guys up front turned around and said, oh, that's the uh, that's the MD-88. It, uh, it's designed like that. I said, what? And he said, yeah, you know, there's no power going to that elevator. And as the, uh, as the air flow starts flowing over that surface, they'll fare together and uh, work in unison. But uh, that's wow. kind of one of the weird Does that move your facts. yoke at all? Or? No. No? Well, I guess in really high wind situations, uh, uh, you, can, you can see a little bit of movement with the, uh, with the yoke, but not like uh, a hydraulically powered 
airplane. Now, the MD-90, again, has the powered elevator back there. And if you have a really stiff wind and it's moving the elevator, the uh, control column will actually move. Interesting. So, you know, because uh, on some airplanes they have control column locks and mm-hmm. some are hydraulically locked. So you actually, do you have a physical lock on your control column? No. The MD- okay. All right. Interesting. Well, that's some neat facts about the MD-80. I didn't know that. What's a, Oh, by the way, what's a Super 80? I hear that term used. <laughs> that was American Airlines' um, uh, name that they they tagged with their uh, MD-82, I think, is the version that they fly. Oh. Uh, they just decided to call it a Super 80. Um, I, th- I think it was American. I don't think that ha- that had anything to do with McDonnell Douglas. Gotcha. Uh, just like they call their, um, their narrow bodies, uh, what, luxury jets, and their wide bodies, luxury liners. It's just kind of a, a term that they coined uh, for the for the MD-82 or whatever series they fly. They just decided to call it the Super 80. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's some cool facts. Any more fun facts you want to pass along? Is that about it? No. It's, um, you know, it, the MD series of airplanes really get a bad rap uh, out there, especially guys that are flying the Boeings, the Airbuses, the uh, Lockheeds. Uh, I guess not so much the Lockheeds anymore, but... Uh, you know, they, it, it just gets a bad rap for the the way it flies and uh, its performance and everything else. And I kind of had that uh, that prejudice as well. You know, after you know the old uh, "if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going." You know, you've seen those bumper stickers on on uh, uh, flight kits and that kind of thing. But um, after you know, if you actually fly the airplane and you uh, you you've flown it for a little while, you really start appreciating uh, the uh, the technology that went into this airplane. So I like it. Cool. So going back to your career, let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, your military career. Do you, there, you know, a lot of people now are, are coming from the civilian ranks, uh, mm-hmm. but you were in the military. How did that help your career? Do you think it did, first of all? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I really did not want to go the military route, but when I finally made the decision that uh, being an airline uh, pilot is what I wanted to do, and if it meant having to go into the military, you know, I didn't know what it was like to be a military pilot. I, I wasn't one of the guys that wanted to fly fighters. I um, I wanted to uh, fly uh, big airplanes, transports, and that kind of thing, and travel the world. That was the appeal to uh, flying in the airlines for me. And so uh, when I when I realized that um, you know going the military route was probably the most sure way of getting to where I wanted to go, um, my idea was that I would be uh, living in uh, the barracks and eating in the mess hall and all those images that you see on the movies and the television programs and that kind of, that's what I had in my head. I had no idea that, you know, being uh, an officer in the military and flying in the military was really, you know, pretty much like a regular job, except that occasionally people shoot at you if you're uh, deployed to areas where there are conflicts going on. But, uh, yeah, that's the downside. But uh, the upside is that uh, the quality of flying uh, experience that you get in the military is just um, – it's unparalleled. And the the training that I got in that one year in undergraduate pilot training, you know, flying aerobatics, formation flying, navigation instrument flying, but mostly the, the, the kind of thing that you're not going to get typically in a uh, civilian training uh, environment – is the uh, the really crazy stuff that you see the fighters doing? You know the the loops and the um, and the well the spins. I guess you still do out there, but uh, uh, you know the the great aerodynamic no aerobatic excuse me maneuvers and the formation flying especially uh, is a is a lot of fun. And uh, so for me the um, the thing that being a military pilot really 
helped in my training uh, was the, the, the exposure to seeing an airplane upside down and feeling G-forces on my body that uh, I otherwise would not have felt if I had been trained uh, through a civilian career. Unless you happen to be uh, one of those lucky guys who goes out there and has a super decathlon or a, a super cub or you know, one of the aerobatic type airplanes and you get to go out there and do crazy things. Uh, but most of us uh, who make it through the civilian training world never really get exposed to anything more than, what, 60 degrees of bank and, and uh, maybe – you know, 15 degrees nose high or low. Right. Uh, you Why don't really you see me. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't, you know, trust me, in an airline, you don't, you know, the company really doesn't want you to fly more than 60 degrees of bank and uh, 15, 20 degrees nose high or nose low. I'm just joking there, but I mean, I'm not joking. Uh, they, you know, you want to be giving your passengers the most comfortable ride as possible and you want to limit the bank to maybe about 25 degrees or so and, you know, make it as smooth and comfortable as possible. But I think it, um, it is a good thing to know what it feels like and what it looks like when your airplane gets into an upset situation. And then you know, hey, I've been in this situation before. I know how to recover this airplane and get everything flying uh, upright as it should be. So, I think that's a great benefit for having a military career right there. Mm-hmm. So it's just for the safety yeah. aspect. I think that's terrific. Yeah. So I would say that that, uh, that, that was the, uh, the thing that uh, I, I value most. I mean, now that I can look at my past uh, and uh, my military time, I mean, I really, really am glad that I ended up going through the military to get to where I am now because I think it's just been a, a great experience for me. So. You, you know, some of the people that are listening that don't have, don't have any plans of going to the military, you, like you said, you can go out there and get that experience. There's formation flying teams out there. There's aerobatic schools, aerobatic schools that teach you formation flying. So there's lots you can get involved with just so that you can learn what to do in those type of situations. So don't, don't feel like you have to go to the military route to, to find those things out. As a matter of fact, a lot of these schools have ex-military instructors that are mm-hmm. teaching you how to do this. You know, I'm, I'm doing, uh, my formation flying, uh, with an ex-Thunderbird uh, pilot in the Air Force. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of those folks out there. You just have to go and find them. Yeah, I was just reading about a company down in uh, uh, Kissimmee, uh, I think it's called Mustang or something, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, has a, a program specifically to introduce people to uh, those kind of unusual attitudes and uh, upset recoveries and that kind of thing. I think they use a Czechoslovakian-made L-39 or L-39, something like that. L-39, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a really neat thing to get involved with. And as a matter of fact, maybe we could find them and have them on the show sometime. Yeah, I think that would be a great a great show uh, topic for you because uh, you're right. There are, there are ways to get that, um, that experience uh, out there. And I, and I really, even if it costs you some money, I'm talking to the people out there who are already professional pilots. And uh, I, I think it's worth your time and your money to take one of those courses and to, uh, because, you know, if you're ever in that situation in your career of, uh, you know, getting behind somebody's wake turbulence and all of a sudden you're, you know, upside down and uh, running out of ideas, it's always a great, uh, I know we do that in the simulator, but trust me, uh, doing um, an unusual attitude recovery in the simulator uh, is nothing like really doing it in an airplane. So that's my advice for people out there listening. If you haven't, uh, had that kind of uh, aerobatic experience, or whatever, you should go out there and try to get it. Well, that's some great advice. As a matter of fact, speaking of advice, mm-hmm. um, for people looking at a career, now just, not just people that are looking towards aviation and the military, but in general, uh, mm-hmm. looking towards a career with the airlines, um, before we go into some of the questions, do you have any advice 
for those people? Some general advice, you know, some, something that they can maybe think about and and put in their heads and say, this this is the advice I got I got from Jeff. Oh, let's see. Well, I think my number one advice is that um, don't go into this career uh, for the money because like it's likely you're going to be disappointed. Uh, there are uh, a lot of great things about flying as an airline pilot, but there, as I mentioned before, there are some other downsides, you know, being away from home if you choose to uh, fly the line. Now, there are other things you can do. You can get into the training department and, uh, you know, do the simulator training and that kind of thing and only fly occasionally uh, for those who like to uh, be home more. Uh, but, you know, a majority of us, you know, we're paid to go out there and fly passengers from A to B. And that usually means being away from home one, two, three nights or more per week. So understand that it's not all a bed of roses. Now, some of us look at that as a as a positive thing. But uh, a lot of us also realize that, you know, we're, we may be missing some things with our families and such as a, as a career in a, as an airline pilot. Um, but if if you're doing it because you love the job you love flying and you love traveling, uh, and uh, you you don't put all of your emphasis on the compensation. I think it's a great career. But if you're in it just to make as much money as possible, uh, doing as little as you can, <laughs> I don't think that's a good decision for you. That's my advice. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because the 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 most miserable people I see are those that got in it just for the money. And the people that I've had to counsel over the years, you know, with my job at the at the union, they uh, they're the ones that say, hey, you know, I really don't like this. I was told I was supposed to be making six figure income after five years and only work for five days a month. And I said, well, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know who sold you that idea, but uh, there's a lot more to it. And if you're not here because you like to fly, then maybe you could look at something else. You know, exactly. maybe do flying as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And no. it's just you've you've discovered this is not something you want to do. Exactly. Well, that that's some really good advice, Jeff. I, I was wondering, maybe we can move on to, if if you don't mind hanging around for some listener mail. Oh, yeah. First one actually is a follow-on question. It's from Steve. Steve wrote in before. He says, Carl, I hope you've been well and had a great Christmas and New Year. Still loving the podcast. I've listened to every episode other than perhaps the newest one or two. Lots of great advice and knowledge. You have some excellent guests on, guests like Jeff, and thanks for that compliment. Uh, I'm glad you're getting some something out of this podcast. I wanted to send a, a short update. In short, the airport where I, I can best work part-time really prefers full-time CFIs, so I'm thinking of uh, aiming at taking a longer path. Uh, before he uh, rode in, Steve was asking about part-time jobs as a flight instructor. Uh, so now he's mentioning the fact that he's he's going to have to go look towards a, a full-time job. He continues, That means I'm planning on starting my instrument rating soon and then hope to follow that with my commercial ticket. The goal is to complete both ratings this year and work towards the CFI next year. To that end, I'll probably be buying Rod Machado's instrument rating book in the next week or so. His private pilot book is still the best I've read and was immensely helpful during my training a few years ago. Are there any other books slash materials you'd recommend? Well, there sure are. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i leave some links on, on uh, this episode here 
uh, episode 29, where you can actually go out there and link to uh, Amazon uh, for those books. And the fir- there's a couple of them that I always recommend. Uh, first is the Jeppesen Instrument Commercial Book. That's excellent. It's very in-depth, uh, some real good concepts and pictures, etc. And it it's kind of like the Bible. It, it uh, really has every, every single detail about everything. The other thing, too, that I think every instructor should have in their library you should have different FAA materials, including these books, the Airplane Flying Handbook, the Instrument Procedures Handbook, the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, and the Instrument Flying Handbook. Those are four books, and I always have those because those materials are where you're going to find the questions and answers during both your practical and your written test. Also, while you're instructing, you're going to find yourself referring to those. And when an FA person asks you a question, they will also refer to those. So uh, is is there any other books that you can think of, uh, Jeff? No, I think you covered it. Um, I, I, I think that's a, a great uh, resource, the FAA uh, uh, handbooks that you mentioned there. Um, the only thing other I would say is uh, go on your computer and just Google Learn how to fly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just like look at some great tutorials, you know, YouTube videos and such, and that's all you'll need. No, I, and then you can jump I, up there. And I, I don't really, uh, I don't really have more advice. That's a great answer, Carl. You know, I, I can't think of anything else. Those are just the basics. Now, I'm not taking away from Rob Machado's book, which is outstanding, but there are certain things you have to have as the basics because that's what you're going to refer to, and that's why I usually tell people they should always have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but continuing on, Steve, he continues here. It is. I'll also probably look to maximize, excuse me, maximize the knowledge test per your suggestions. So I'll try and knock out the fundamentals of instructing out so that I can take the advanced ground instructor and the instrument ground instructor test when I cover similar areas of knowledge on the instrument rating and commercial tests. Sound like a good idea. I think it's a great idea. As a matter of fact, I really wish I did this. I really wish that I banged out my ground instructor ratings, and I'll tell you why. If you, I, I was able to get my master CFI, but I was unable to get the gold seal because of the fact that I didn't have one of the ground instructor ratings, like the the advanced ground instructor ratings. The other thing, as Steve and I spoke before, was about the fact that you can actually start making money as a ground instructor. So I think really you should look towards banging those out as as soon as you can. And uh, is uh, do you have any other knowledge on that? Uh? Well, no, I don't, but uh, I, just a question. What is, what is the gold seal? Gold seal um, enables uh, an instructor to get on their, their flight instructor certificate a seal that is actually gold by having a pass rate of over 80% and also having an advanced ground instructor's type of certificate. There are some other ways to get that. Uh, the FAA can issue you a gold seal, but it, all, it just shows that you have gone the extra mile as an instructor and you have a high pass rate. Uh, for okay. that. And then the master CFI, as a matter of fact, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll put a link in the podcast for Gold Seal and also the master CFI. The master CFI is an organization that uh, it's it's knowledge, it's continuing education, and it's it's administered by a couple different organizations, I should say. The Society of uh, Flight uh, Aviation and Flight Educators and also the National Association of Flight Instructors. And that is, is way beyond what you really need to do uh, for the Gold Seal. As a matter of fact, getting your Gold Seal 
will count towards credits. But you know, you have to volunteer, you have to produce some type of materials, have something published, uh, and you really have to be involved in in instructing and in the aviation community. And there's only I think about 700 people have actually been able to get the the master CFI. So I'll I'll put information about that out there, and uh, it's a real terrific thing to work towards. It looks, uh, you know, as far as people here, why would they do that? Well, it, it looks good on a resume. It'll help you and show mm-hmm. that you're really involved. Uh, yeah, and so. anything you can do to uh, you know make yourself look better than the person that they're comparing you to is is good. Yeah, especially nowadays, even though I, I know that there's going to be a quote-unquote shortage, in, uh, especially in the regional airlines, there is going to be competition, and uh, you really try to get yourself in the door as quickly as possible, uh, especially right now. Competition is pretty fierce. I mean, it, we're, we're going to see some movement here, and we are seeing some movement, but uh, just try to get as many things into your belt as possible. And the last thing I would add to that is that um, you know teaching um, ground school, I mean, there's no better way to learn something than to teach it. Great so, point. Yeah, that's it's very true, and that's when you really learn it. It's kind of weird. Yep. <laughs> you know? yeah, right, because uh, you have to, because yeah. you know that they're going to ask you the question, and you have to know the yeah. answer. Yeah, and you have to be able to explain it too, which is right. is great. It's a great great thing in your mind, you know, that to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Steve, thanks for that uh, question. Uh, moving on to our next one here, uh, we have a question coming in from Todd. Uh, says, Carl, I want to thank you for forwarding my questions about corporate aviation to Tom. Tom Wachowski is somebody that we had on before about uh, corporate aviation and flying. Please pass on my appreciation to him for taking the time to answer my questions. I will do that. Keep up the good work as your podcast really fills an important niche in, niche in the uh, aviation community. Well, thanks. Carl, one thing I'd be interested in hearing sometime is what are, are the good and bad of airline pilot unions? I personally don't see how unions have made the lives of pilots better. When I talk to pilots, it seems they talk about their union with disdain more than anything else. Are unions really good for aviation? I know a couple of SkyWest guys who love their company, and yet they are non-union. Coincidence? I'm sure this is, is a hot debate uh, to tread on lightly. And yes, it is. And I tell you what, the way that I'm going to answer that, just uh, uh, to try to give you uh, a more uh, an answer that is – is general enough. I have been, I've worked at airlines. I've worked at a bunch of airlines actually because of 9-11. I had to move around a lot. I've worked at both union and non-union shops. And I've seen unions that were good and unions that weren't good. And I've seen shops that didn't have unions that worked well and ones that didn't have uh, unions that didn't work well. So the answer to the question is this. It depends on your union and your union leadership. The, the union within these airlines is they have their own, say it's Airline Pilots Association, which is the largest pilot union out there. They actually are a national organization, but the union itself at the airline works autonomously from that union. They have the resources, which is great, and that is one of the big benefits. Uh, and just one of the major benefits, especially with a union, is the fact that if you have any problems with your medical, that type of thing, there's an incredible amount of resources there that they have. Now, in your local union, you have people that are voted in, and those are people. And those people that are voted in, they can be good or they can be bad. And I've seen some union people that are, have been put in power that weren't so good and have had certain issues and, and were removed from power and didn't represent the pilots well, but also I've seen it on the other side where they have. So it really is a depends is my, my answer to that question. And I'm not trying to be too political, but I like people to form their own 
uh, opinion on what they think of unions. From from my perspective, I've actually been a union representative for over a decade, and one of the reasons that I'm able to do this podcast is my position with the union it was to help pilots that were on furlough. Now that position was actually one that was appointed by the union. Your union dues don't really go towards that because it's a volunteer position. There are some airlines that are non-union that have that similar type of union. So what does a union do? It also it does something as far as labor is concerned. It allows you to collectively bargain, and they have experience and have these resources with the larger union to allow you to bargain for your salary and those type of things. So when you go to the company, you have representation from the union, uh, but one of the, uh, again, this is going to be a little bit long of a, a, a answer, but one of the things that people don't realize is say you, you were to lose your job. The union only represents you to a certain point, but if you were to lose your job or you were to be fired, you normally have to go out and get your own counsel. And the union, of course, is going to help you as much as they can. But in a in a well-managed company, they're also going to work with you as much as they can, too. Uh, so there's the two sides. I don't know, if Jeff, if you want to take this on or not and make a comment as far as a union, non-union type of thing. Well, it's always controversial to talk about unions. And many of us come from backgrounds, especially those of us that come from a military background, uh, you know, to kind of have this normal opposition to the whole idea of being a member of a union or represented by a union. But it is a fact that all of the things that uh, we benefit from as airline pilots, uh, including uh, safety, which benefits, of course, our our public uh, comes from the fact that uh, the unions were there at the very beginning of this uh, aviation passenger service uh, world. And uh, the, the pilots back then were getting abused, incredibly abused, and it was very unsafe. And a lot of the uh, safety uh, rules that we have in effect today came about uh, almost directly because of the uh, involvement of unions. Now, of course, I know that was a long time ago. And uh, maybe they were uh, appropriate back then, and uh, some people would argue, well, we don't need them now. And uh, there's always a good and bad when it comes to unions. Now, uh, the company that I work for, um, I don't have to be a member of the union, but I still get, I still have to pay the union dues. So I am a member of the union because I want to have a vote uh, when, we, when it comes to uh, collective bargaining and uh, voting for and against contracts and that kind of thing. Um, I think it's very important to be involved in that way. And I think the unions do really serve a, a very important role in even today's world of uh, aviation. And I think that, uh, you know, it's good to have somebody there to kind of have your back. If you uh, do something, you make an error, uh, these people are going to do their best to de- um, defend you and, uh, and represent you. And uh, I think overall... Uh, unions are a good thing. That's my two cents. All right, that's and that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make this uh, people, you know, have their own opinions and that type of thing. And it's great to hear someone else's opinion. And um, you know, I I try to sit on the fence as much as I can in this issue because it is such a controversial issue. And I I want you to formulate your own opinion about it. And I think you know Jeff really helped here by by you know bringing his opinion to it. It does uh, again it has benefits. It has uh, the the downsides. I guess you could say. Let's see, it costs you money. Uh, mm-hmm. You may not agree with the decisions that are made. Uh, you, uh, when people start complaining, it's because of the fact that they want something, but what's better for the the whole is is sometimes not what's better for you. So there there are some downsides. The good sides, like you said, it, it, they do have your back if something does go wrong. Believe me, union representation is a wonderful thing. 
uh, the union does do quite a few things uh, for you when when something goes wrong. And you know, the most important thing I, I don't think I think is the safety aspect too. You know, it's it's the fact that if you see something that's unsafe, you don't you're not afraid maybe to get fired or something like that. So there's there's a, a benefit there. So I'm not gonna mm-hmm. I'm not gonna weigh in on either side whether, uh, in my opinion, whether you should or shouldn't have a union. I'm just hoping to give you enough information to to formulate your your own ideas there. And Todd's statement about the um, you know a couple he knows a couple of Sky West guys who love their company and yet they are non-union. Coincidence? I I don't think so. No, I I mean, I, well I I don't think the point um, is that because they're non-union and they love their company. I don't think those two necessarily go together because I I guarantee you uh, that that people who are are very strong union supporters at my company, uh, most of them are also very very strong supporters of the company itself. So I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. Yeah, that you know, Jeff, that was a great point, uh, and and I very much agree with that. Most union members are very very much proponents of the company that they work for. So that was a, a very good point there. And uh, so, yes, that's uh, – is it a coincidence? No. There, there are two different things. You could love the company you work for and, and have a union or not have a union, period. You know, that's, that's just like anything else. Uh, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. So there's that's all I have for the union, non-union thing. Uh, Jeff, is there anything else you want to add to that? I think we – yeah, I think that, uh, that that we'll just leave it right there because we could go on. We could speak for an hour or two on the on yeah. unions, and that's where. And again, this is something that you know. This this not really the forum for this. I just want people to know this is what a union is, and this is what they do for the airlines, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And of course, you can go out there, and there's lots of websites out there. You can look up information about the unions and non-unions. We've we've stayed away from this issue as much as possible, but I figure I'd, I'd better bring it up at some point because it is an important part of your career. But right. Todd, thanks for the question. Thanks for the very uh, making us feel uncomfortable here. Some, <laughs> sometimes that is good for us. It makes us grow and stretch here. And uh, you know, I, I hopefully have answered that in a way that you can formulate your own opinion. And uh, trying not to give away my opinion on that. So, uh, but I appreciate Jeff uh, putting his his uh, opinion there. I think that was terrific. Uh, let's move on to our last question before we do. Uh uh, go into our uh, recommendation. This is a bit of a long one. It's from Jason, and Jason writes in, I'm currently a C-130 instructor pilot slash evaluator for the U.S. Air Force. I work at a formal training unit, which uh, means that I train U.S. Air Force pilots that have finished undergraduate pilot training, just like Jeff uh, was talking about, and he teaches people how to fly the C-130. We also train co-pilots to be aircraft commanders, as well as requalify previously qualified pilots. I've just over 2,300 hours with over 1,000 hours combat time in adverse weather and terrain. I've spent the last seven years on a four-month deployment rotation, meaning that I'm gone for four months and then home for four months. I'm coming up on the expiration of my commitment and trying to make a decision as to whether or not I should make the jump to the airlines slash FedEx, UPS, or stay in. With the upcoming forced retirements, I'm curious as to your thoughts and how marketable I would be in these companies. I plan on taking my military company instructor test for my CFI, CFII, that's a flight instructor and instrument instructor, when I get home from this deployment. I hold a multi-engine commercial rating as well. I also have plans to get my ATP when I come home from this current deployment. I have uh, average internet here, and I'm also at times I'm limited as to downloading your podcast, uh, so if you could write me back. So I did write him back, but we're going to talk a little bit about this here. 
Thank you so much for the help. If you would ever like a guest and talk about tactical airlift side of the U.S. Air Force, such as doing airdrops of troops and supplies, please let me know. I'll be home in late January. Thank you so much for your time and help. Jason, I may just take you up on that. That sounds pretty darn cool to find out about those those type of jobs in the in the military. And uh, Jeff's going to chime in here with an answer right after I, I give mine real quick. As far as your marketability, I think you're very marketable. Uh, the uh, You talked about uh, FedEx and UPS. They actually asked for a 1,000 hours of pilot and command turbine time. And uh, I know that uh, Jason and I had a discussion about this pilot and command time and turbine time. The airlines, when they say turbine time, they break things out by either turbojet or turboprop, but turbine time is turbine time. Now, you being in the military and have, having some tactical experience, it really doesn't matter as much the fact that you flew a jet or that you flew a turboprop. You've, you've had those decision-making skills, and you're in an arena where you're constantly thinking. So, yes, I think you're extremely marketable. With that said, just as a, a quick side note, I uh, one of the classes I was in during the um, – uh, oh gosh! During an interview for an airline, the lowest flight time I saw was around four thousand hours, with a high of about ten thousand hours. But again, uh, many of those were civilians. So you're looking at the, the low of four thousand hours, where some of the, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the guys is a C-130 pilot. And so I think you are you very much are marketable to the airlines, and I I think you uh, you should look at making the jump. Because uh, things are going to start moving along pretty quickly, I wouldn't rule out any other passenger carrying airlines. Uh, I think those are are some there's some good careers there too. I know FedEx and UPS their pay is pretty high right now, so you have to be somewhat competitive there. But they do like uh, they like uh, military pilots. That's that's for sure. And getting that ATP, of course, you have to have that now. The airline transport pilot certificate to get hired with a with an airline. Well, I hope that helps. And Jeff, uh, is there anything else you can add to his uh, his question there? Well, I agree with you, Carl. He's uh, very um, marketable as far as uh, getting hired by either the cargo airlines or the passenger airlines. I uh, I know that um, the airlines look at your military service and understand that it's not like you're flying for the regionals and are flying all the time and really, really, you know, adding up the hours in your logbook. Um, being uh, an officer, a pilot in the military, you're an officer first and a pilot second, as he knows. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we do as officers in the military uh, have nothing to do with flying, at least flying directly. So you're not getting the same kind of uh, hour uh, logging experience that a lot of people do in other fields. So, uh, And the airlines know that. And so... I think that your experience is quality uh, experience, especially, and this is the most important thing. If you're just in the military and a regular uh, line flying pilot or whatever you want to call it, uh, and you're not an instructor or evaluator, uh, you're not looked at as highly uh, as you would be as you are, uh, Jason, a, a C-130 instructor, pilot, and evaluator. They really, really look at that uh, in a good way. Uh, you're going to be very, very marketable for uh, getting out there and uh yeah don't uh, just stick with the with the uh cargo carriers i think that you can you can be competitive at uh, any of the passenger airlines as well so yeah. and especially with this uh quote unquote uh pending uh pilot shortage uh i'm not sure we could probably talk for hours on that as well but i think that if this does actually happen that uh, you're going to be in in a good position 
Yeah, good good point, Jeff. And as far as the, the pilot shortage, I know I've talked about this uh, on many other podcasts, and I've spoke with a lot of people. It's really going to hit the more of the regional airlines. In his mm-hmm. case, he is looking at going right into the majors, so that's a little different. You still, it'll always be competitive. The, just think about this: the majors could hire every regional airline pilot, and then there'd be some left over. So mm-hmm. you you still uh, he's in a great position here. The shortage, quote unquote, I think is there's going to be a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but believe me, they're, they're going to find pilots. There's, there's a lot out there. So, uh, yeah. but Jeff, I appreciate your, your answering that for us. And I think that's the end of our, anything else you have for, uh, Jason here? Let's see. No, I, uh, just, uh, keep, keep getting that time and, um, you know, make sure that your, uh, resume is in tip top shape and, um, present yourself well when you go to interview and, uh, set your sights as high as, as, uh, you can and you'll be fine. And before we move on to our recommendation, uh, Jason, just one quick more comment. Quick comment. I uh, really appreciate your service. It's uh, those people that are in our armed forces that allow us back here at home to have the freedoms we have and to sleep well at night. So I do appreciate your uh, keeping us safe and and uh, those and promoting freedom around the world. Uh, let's see. Moving on to our recommendation. Actually, this is uh, one involving you, Jeff. Um, the our recommendation today. Uh, if you're interested in getting an inside look at the daily life of the airline pilot and you want to hear some insightful commentary concerning airlines and travel, or you'd like to hear an airline pilot's perspective on the latest industry news, well, there's a show you should listen to. It's called Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy is a view of the airline industry from a captain's perspective. Our guest today, Jeff, like we said before, is host of this interesting and entertaining show. And to help us understand what his show is about, Jeff, what is Airline Pilot Guy? Well, gosh, I hate to toot my own horn. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, that's the I mentioned music earlier, and uh, I actually play the horn, the trumpet. So let me go over here and get it, and I'll toot it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the Airline Pilot Guy show is uh, just something that I started back in 2000. Actually, I started as a, a, the show was called Catholic Pilot, and it was an effort for me to kind of combine my aviation experience and uh, career with uh, my faith. And then I realized uh, very, very quickly that uh, most of the people that were listening uh, could care less about uh, the uh, the Catholic part of it, and they wanted to know more about the pilot part of it. So it evolved very, very quickly into a an aviation podcast. And so I finally changed the name to Airline Pilot Guy uh, after about 40 episodes of Catholic Pilot. And uh, I've been the Airline Pilot Guy ever since. And I basically look at uh, what's happening in the news in the last week or two. And uh, if I can get some uh, some uh, air traffic control, uh, you know, pilot communications recordings from liveatc.net or other uh, sources, I like playing that. And I can kind of go in and break down what is happening or what may be happening in the cockpit at this time when they're dealing with a, uh, an emergency situation. And uh, it, because I I can lend that kind of perspective because I've I've witnessed it, uh, experienced it myself, and then of course uh, people just have questions in general about about our careers, about layovers, about uh, uh, weather, about all kinds of different things, and uh, they they uh, send me feedback and I answer it. So it's it kind of has uh, evolved into a a question and answer kind of a, a show, a long format show. I get all kinds of feedback from. Uh, all my great listeners, and uh, it takes a while for me to answer it. So, and I'm a big windbag anyway. So, uh, I try to keep it casual as much as I can, and uh, try to use humor uh, now and then. And uh, 
that's what my show is. Just basically, the, your your uh, neighbor next door or the guy you know at your church or whatever, uh, he's an airline pilot. And hey, I was wondering about this. Let me ask you about this, and I'm there to uh, give you an answer. It may not be the right answer, but it's my answer. <laughs> Well, I think it's a terrific show, Jeff, I, and I think that it it appeals to many different people. And I think people that are interested in a career, this audience, should listen to it. And they they really can get it the the perspective from an airline pilot. But you get to find out what's happening day to day, what's in the news, the other things about being an airline pilot. You know, because right now a lot of folks that are listening are just focused on getting their ratings, getting that job. But you want to know the daily life. It's it's a good thing to to listen to. I think all these podcasts are wonderful. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. Jeff, I think yours. Yours is terrific. Now, how would they find the podcast so they can listen to it? Well, you can go to airlinepilotguy.com. That's my website. And uh, you can also go into iTunes and do a search in the iTunes store for Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, that's G-U-Y at the end, not guide. And, uh, yeah, Google it. Probably will uh, show up somewhere in the – or Bing it if you prefer. And uh, that's the way you can find me. Right. And Jeff, you know, I really appreciate your helping our audience today understand what it's like to be a, a captain in an airline. And I appreciate what you do with your podcast, too. I was wondering, is it possible maybe if uh, we do get some questions for you, if I could forward them on or maybe you could come on again and answer some of those? Absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. Sure. Yeah. Send them my way. I need more feedback. <laughs> no, really. Honestly, I think, you know, this This really has been um, a, a great benefit for me doing this podcast because it's really, um, you, you know, it's easy to get into this world of flying and kind of your own little niche and uh, kind of do your thing and then get on with your life. And uh, what's interesting for me or has been beneficial for me is that people ask me questions about areas where I'm not really sure I know that much information about it. And so it forces me to do a lot of research. And so I've been, I've become really um, reconnected into the aviation world. And there's a lot of stuff that I absolutely don't have any idea how to answer, like in uh, general aviation, uh, corporate aviation. I may have an idea of what the answer may be, but I'm not an expert in it. And so I go out there and look for expert opinion and advice from other places and sometimes bring on people who, you know, actually are, are, are experts in that area. And uh, anyway, it's been, a, it's been a big um, learning experience for me. It's been very ben- beneficial for me. Yeah, and that's that's great, and that's and you bring that out and into the audience and into your listeners, and I think that's terrific. So Jeff, we'll we'll have them go over to Airline Pilot Guy if you want to find it. What we'll do is we'll put some links on on the website here, uh, and we'll put it on episode number twenty nine of Aviation Careers Podcast slash twenty nine. Of course, if you want to get in touch with me, that's easy. Just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. dot com. We have many links on to how you can get in touch with us. How you can subscribe. I also, if you could, please some some feedback. I'd really appreciate that. Go to the contact uh, tab and let me know about the length of the uh, of these different uh, audio sequences here. We actually have gone a little bit long here, and we did do that in a past episode answering questions. I want to know if if that is helpful for you uh, by having an episode run longer and having those questions answered. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to uh, rate us on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that too. Maybe careers podcast again jeff thanks for being here and uh, i appreciate all that you do for us and and you know if you're listening here today just remember that just like jeff's 
path was it was varied. Uh, he he went from uh, being somebody who was passionate about aviation, not knowing what to do, then went on to the military, went on to the airlines. Uh, there, his his career changed along the way. I think we all that happens to everybody, and we all can benefit from listening to as many people, not just this this podcast, reading as much as we can about the aviation career, but be open to what's coming in front of you. And really enjoy that journey. Enjoy the time that you're taking now while you're learning, while you're moving forward in your career. No matter what your level, if you're just starting out or you're a seasoned captain at a regional airline and you want to move to the majors, just keep in mind that that there are those areas in this aviation field you may not know about. And I'm hoping that we're able to open your eyes to that on this podcast. Well, I appreciate you all listening and uh, safe flying, and we'll talk to you again next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.